Hey guys, before you skip forward to the meat of the episode, please take a moment to listen to this because this is a company you need to know about. I'm really excited to share with you guys that I've partnered up with a wonderful company that's innovating how we connect with those that we've lost. That company is called After. And if you haven't heard about them, here are the details. They've created the first ever gravesite camera system. What that means is that they provide for you a camera that's solar powered for you to put in the gravesite of your loved one and you get a constant 24-7 live feed of that gravesite through your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever it may be. What's beautiful about that is that you can also share audio with the gravesite from the comfort of your home from your phone. So this is a beautiful way to stay connected when there's distance between you and the gravesite of the loved one, especially now during COVID times, travel restrictions, even if it's just distance that's separating you and you can't go visit the gravesite every month or every week or as much as you'd like, this is the way to do it. So Super cool. If you guys want to find out more, their website is after.live and that's A-F-T-R dot L-I-V-E. And if you use my code, which is death dash 10, you get 10% off your camera. If this isn't for you at the moment, make sure you go check them out regardless. Tell your friends about it because this is really powerful technology that everyone should be aware of. And now welcome to episode 33 of the Conversations on Death podcast. My name is Lorena and I'm your host for the Conversations on Death podcast. Death is the one thing we all have in common, yet it's one of the most taboo subjects in our culture. So I invite you, dear deathling, to join my guests and I as we dive deep into everything death related. And in the process, learn about the many lessons death has to teach us the living. Today I spoke to Piero Calvi Parisetti, who is a medical doctor, a longtime university lecturer, and a member of the Society for Psychical Research and the International Association for Near-Death Studies. His particular area of interest is applied psychical research, that is the practical application of research findings, in particular for the benefit of the bereaved and the dying. He has written four books on these subjects, and his latest being Step into the Light, Transform Your Fear of Death by Learning About Life After Life. As mentioned earlier, his field of research is psychical research. So he has reviewed thousands and thousands of studies and research and information out there for evidence of the afterlife. And after talking about near-death experiences, psychic communication, deathbed visions, uh, reincarnation, so many things, he has concluded that there's undoubtedly an afterlife. This episode was, wow, mind-blowing, and I definitely suggest you guys give this a listen with an open mind. Even if you don't believe in the afterlife, this is for everybody. Hope you guys enjoy. So just tell me a little bit about yourself, how you started doing this work, what led you to it, and then we'll go from there. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I am a Western-educated medical doctor. And I say that because I want to stress that I am the intellectual, the cultural product of a system that maintains that anything that can possibly exist is matter. If you cannot touch it, if you cannot measure it with instruments and blah, blah, it simply does not exist. And that's, you know, a worldview that I subscribed to in high school and then at university and then in my early practice with no, I mean, I took it for granted. And that came, in a way, with a certain contempt, you see, for, for, I'm afraid to say, for religions and religious people and, and beliefs and, and everything, and uh, let alone anything, uh, quote-unquote, paranormal and, and, uh, and all that. And that, you know, certainly well, well into my 40s, and it was actually, if I remember well, at age 48, I was living in Geneva, Switzerland at that time. And I remember the episode quite well because we were sitting around the kitchen table with my wife, who's from Glasgow. I'm a Glaswegian Italian myself. She's a Glaswegian 
it was written. <laughs> and this, and she told me this little episode that happened to her when she was a late adolescent, maybe 18, 19 in Glasgow. And she was still living with her parents and about to leave the family home, but I mean, she was still with them. And she had a, a, a wrapping episode, a little, you know, a spooky accident that lasted for a few months and then went away in very peculiar circumstances. And, you know, a cute thing, an interesting thing, a curious thing. But to tell you the truth, Marina, if you had told me that or anybody had told me that, then I would have said, what I okay, yes. Now what? <laughs> so let's change subject. But, you know, she, she's my wife. She's the person I know best and, and the person I trust most. And I could tell that after all these years, she was still perturbed by, by this, this happening back in the what. Late, late 70s, I suppose. And so with the stiff uh, upper lip attitude that I had then, I said, mm, let me see if anything serious has been written about this, you know, nonsense. <laughs> and immediately I stumbled upon the 575 pages written by a super credentialed academic psychologist, member of the Royal Society in the UK, for God's sake, David Fontana, and prematurely uh, disappeared a few years ago. And this book reads, the title reads, Is There an Afterlife? Question mark. A review of the evidence. And well, I bought that book, and boy, did those 575 pages change my life. Wow. They really did they triggered an interest at the beginning. And then what I can only des describe as a true scholarly passion for the subject of survival. And, uh, and uh, uh, those 500 odd pages were followed by, I reckon, about 30,000 more to date and counting. I became a member of the Society for Psychical Research in the UK the International Association for Near-Death Studies in the US. And these are professional scientific organizations devoted to the study of the survival hypothesis in various, in various you know, dimensions. And then I, I ended up, I went to conferences and study days, and I ended up training personally with the person, one of the persons I can really consider one of the, my intellectual heroes, Dr. Raymond Moody in, in Alabama now. And Raymond Moody, some of your listeners may remember, wrote uh, Life After Life in 1975 and sold 25 million copies. He was the first one to talk about near-death experiences. Now everybody knows about NDEs, but then he was the one who really brought the subject to, to the masses. And so, you see, I, 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 I did this. It was not a personal experience that set me on this trajectory. It was my wife's personal experience. But this incarnation of mine is an incarnation of reason, not of experiencing. Is 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 my? It seems that my destiny is one of learning, studying, reflecting. And since I've been a university lecturer for many years, I'm good at explaining. And so. Immediately, I, I, I wanted to share this knowledge and a little, just a tiny, how could I say, definitional thing that I'm always keen to point out. I do not consider myself a researcher in as I do not produce original material. I'm not carrying out tests or experiments or investigations. I'm a scholar. I'm somebody who reads digests and reflects and, and perhaps regurgitates and, and, and shares the knowledge. So basically, yeah, you gather other people's uh, research and Correct. digest yeah. it and put it out uh -huh. there. Uh -huh. So um, psychical research is applied psychical research is the title of this kind of research? Uh, yes, thank you for bringing that up, because unfortunately, the term psychical research has gone completely out of use. Mm. Psychical research, uh, which was a very established term maybe a hundred years ago, includes what today we call parapsychology, 
which is the study of uh, uncommon or, or unexplained human potential, very well documented by any standard of science. We know that humans do possess faculties, for instance, of mind reading, it's called telepathy, of seeing into the future, that calls precognition, seeing at the distance, distance viewing, and we seem to have the possibility of influencing both inanimate matter and living organis organisms with our thoughts and our, 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 our wishes. And this is, as I say, is as well documented as any other area of science. And that's parapsychology. But then psychical research also includes the study of evidence for life after life. The study of evidence for the fact that, in this I, 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 I failed to, to, to say as I was retracing my steps, let me go back very quickly, this, this path that my wife's episode telling set me on lasted now for 20 odd years, more than 20 years, and it's not been a one-way path because I'm a deeply rational person. I am skeptical, but I'm skeptical, I'm not a scoffer. I am skeptical in the real term, in the real sense of the term. I want to see the evidence and I want to challenge evidence. And uh, after digesting all these pages and all this information, my conclusion today, to the best of my intellectual honesty, is that number one, conclusions, two. Number one, mind, what we call mind, our personality, our memories, our affections, our feelings is closely related to, but independent from the physical brain. Okay? Mind is more than the electrochemical activity of the brain. It cannot be reduced to. And number two, second conclusion, in a way which we do not understand, significant aspects of human personality survive physical death. This is a bold statement. It is an absolutely incredible, unbelievable statement, but it is the only conclusion that anybody who's taken the time and the effort to study the colossal evidence we have with the care it deserves, anybody who's intellectually honest is forced to draw this incredible conclusion. We don't have an explanation. I do not claim that I, I have figured it all because nobody has. But the evidence tells us in a, in a world that we don't die. So psychical research is both parapsychology and the study of afterlife science, we call it. But then you used the even more specialized term of applied uh, applied psychical research. And this is really what I feel I am doing. It's it's my particular area of specialty because I'm, I'm a medical doctor. I'm, I'm a former humanitarian. I worked for the Red Cross in the United Nations. And my instinct and drive has always been one to help others. And so as I was learning all these things about life after life, it immediately became clear to me that what I was learning would have been of great benefit for bereaved people, people who are in pain because of a loss of a loved one, and people who are facing death, either their own or the death of a loved one, and, and so are they upset because of this. And, and the message that there is life after life as truly a, a, a very transformative uh, potential. I do have evidence on that. I would be very happy to speak about uh, research in that field, but I don't know if that would steer us too, too far. No, we so can go point. wherever. Oh, uh, Seriously, so, I, I'm interested in everything you have to say. So whatever uh, you feel <laughs> is necessary, so we'll go there. <laughs> So nice, so nice. So why do I think that afterlife, uh, afterlife, the knowledge of afterlife science can be useful? Well, we have research for that. 
We know, for instance, you certainly have heard of near-death experiences, okay? Near-death experiences in a nutshell, as people, we're talking about millions upon millions in the world and hundreds of thousands of very well-documented, scientifically documented and studied cases in which people with no functioning brain for a variety of reasons, mostly cardiac arrest, but not only, a variety of reasons. The, the brain is out, the lights are out, there's no blood to the, uh, to the brain, the EEG is flat, they have no functioning brain, and yet they report a hyper, they call hyper real conscious experience. They themselves define the, ex the experience they've had more real than reality. An experience not only they should not have because they have no brain, but an experience which is highly structured has a lot of common features across cultures, ac across historical periods. This has been documented 2,500 years ago, almost described with the same words in ancient Greece. Uh, Greece. And, and thirdly, this experience is remembered in minute details 20, 25, 30 years after. So imagine and anybody who's been to high school or university, think of all the hours we spent intentionally trying to remember something. And now 20 or 30 years later, we don't remember a thing. And we had a functional brain. And now these people, without brain, they can remember their experience 30 years later. That's, that's very interesting. Okay. We know that people who had a near-death experience invariably, 100% of the cases, undergo very deep and very significant psychological and behavioral changes. They become more spiritual, less religious. They become much less materialistic, much less attracted to, you know, for material belongings and success, and more attracted to knowledge for its own sake. They become more compassionate, and more interested in helping others, and crucially for what we're discussing here, their fear of death is erased completely and forever. These people have been there. They know they had a first-hand direct experience of what we call, for lack of a better word, the afterlife. Okay, so fine. But those are the people who had the experience. Dr. Kenneth Ring, already in the 1980s, documented through research a very interesting phenomenon. The same very positive and desirable changes appear in people who did not have an MDD, but simply read about them. The more they read, the more they, they, they studied the evidence and challenged the evidence, the less afraid of death, the less materialistic they become, the more generally broadly spiritual oriented they become, just by studying scientific work about near-death experience. That again is a strong indication that knowing about the, the facts support that the, the tons, millions of facts that we have supporting life after life can have a very powerful transformative effect. So that is applied psychical research for me. It is the use of the findings of psychical research for the specific benefit, in this case, of the bereaved and of the dying. Beautiful. Now, for skeptics, I've, I've had several people on the podcast who had near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. I know that when they experience them, like you mentioned earlier, it, they're very real, almost not almost as real as real life, but even more real. And um, the meaning that they gather from it is, is really affects their entire life. But um, obviously skeptics would say you know it's a lack of oxygen in the brain it's a it's a product of a dying person maybe even something that 
all humans go through in order to make the transitioning easier. So I don't think people, skeptics, would be necessarily um, arguing whether these experiences seem real to the person having them, but whether they're actually real. So what is the evidence or is there evidence to support that none of these, uh, you know, the reasons for skeptics oh, are, are you true. Open, you open not a door, a gate. <laughs> ah, you invite me to a wedding. Uh, you're downright in my territory. Thank you. <laughs> Please remember, before I get started and I get too excited, <laughs> that near-death experiences, NDEs, is one of about a dozen different and diverse fields of investigation supporting and uh, supporting life after life. So very important is one of what I consider one of the pillars of the survival hypothesis, but by far not the only one. There are plenty other areas different that with the same level of strength that supports survival. So Mr. Skeptic, you play the skeptic, please. Okay, let me first of all, Anybody interested in the technicalities of what I'm about to say and to go into depth should visit my website, drparizetti.com, where DR as in the prefix doctor, and then Parizetti, Paris, like the city in France, E-T-T-I, at the end, drparizetti.com. There you will find for free a technical article called the truth about near-death experience. And that article is about 20 pages and it is technical. But I systematically not demolish, but simply demonstrate and argue that all the explanations you have mentioned and many others which keep being regurgitated have, have been repeated over and over again for the last 30 years simply do not account for the evidence. So any skeptic who brings up this explanation does not know the evidence. As it often is the case with skeptics, they just fire off the first thing that comes that seems to make sense without having engaged with the data, without having engaged with the science. Okay, so you have mentioned, number one, lack of oxygen. Number two, projections. Oh, people, we are all are afraid to die, and so we imagine these things because of the transition system. I can, I can add uh, the opposite or, or the complementary to the lack of oxygen is the excess of carbon dioxide called, called uh, hypercarbia. I can add hallucinations to that, okay? I can add a magnetic stimulation of the temporal lobe. Skeptics have been climbing the walls and be climbing mirrors trying to find something. Okay. All these explanations are demolished on the basis of clinical data. They do not correspond to the clinical data we have, but we don't have time in our conversation to go through hypoxia, hypercarbia, hallucination, and blah, blah. I could go that, read my article, and they're all individually demolished. But it's not me saying that. It's the evidence which has been saying that for years. And the real researchers are incensed that these so-called explanations are still tossed around because they were, you know, it, eliminated already 20 years ago. Why are we still talking about this today? It's ridiculous. Okay, but never mind. You see, I get excited because, it, as I say, it really is my favorite. Let me recap. Every single explanation does not stand up to the scientific data. Apart from that, now let's look at all these explanations. Okay. For instance, let's take hallucination or let's take fantasy. Can you, Mrs. Skeptic, explain to me why a person should hallucinate when their brain is out? 
Can you explain to me why a person should have the symptoms of hypoxia, which are not an ND, but still should have any experience whatsoever when the brain is out? To drive my point home, let me give you a very, very quick lesson of pathophysiology. We know ND is best in the case of cardiac arrest. And I say best because we know exactly what happens to the physiology when the heart stops beating. Have you ever fainted yourself, Corina? No, you have. You're a very you're a lucky person. And if anybody who's fainted knows that in a space of less than a second, lights go out, you lose consciousness and you fall down. This is exactly what happens when the heart stops beating. beating within a second from the heart seizing its function, lights go out. Okay. A few more seconds and the entire electrical activity of the brain is out. Just a few more seconds and the breathing stops. And when I, I say that, because breathing is controlled by a center very deep in the brainstem, very well protected, okay? Because one of the explanations is said, oh, but you know, maybe the cortex, the outside part of the brain doesn't work, but there are still parts inside the brain that work and that is why people have the experience. Sorry, Mr. Skeptic, do your research, look at the data. After about 30 seconds, the most fundamental, the oldest, evolutionarily, the oldest reflexes, arc reflex, we call it, like the gagging reflex. You know, if you stimulate the back of the throat, you sort of gag, they are gone. This means that there is no brain. There is no cortex, but even the deepest regions of the brain the brainstem are out of function, they're out of order. So why in that situation should anybody experience anything? Fantasy, projection, hallucination, hypoxia, hypercarbia, whatever you want. It is impossible to account how people have this experience and even more so how people build memory of this experience. Lastly, lastly, we say that this experience shares a lot of common points between people, among people of completely different, different backgrounds. So why should a white American Protestant have the same experience as a Hindu from the Himalayas, as a secular Danish uh, film director or whatever, everybody, I would uh, say that everybody has the same experience, it would be misleading. But there are, you know, the, the common elements which are well documented, they are found in essentially each and every NDE. So it is impossible to find a materialistic explanation for how a non-functioning brain should produce A, anything at all, B, something which is highly structured and very detailed and life transforming, C, something which is very similar across cultures, time periods, socioeconomic backgrounds, sexual orientation, what have you, and D, how these people uh, build memories. Let me add an E. We have, I'm sorry, Mr. Skeptic, if you deny this, you are not engaged in evidence. You have not engaged the PhD dissertations and, 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 and the clinical work that's been done. We have very well documented evidence for the fact that people have veridical perception from out of their bodies whilst the brain is out. There is anecdotal evidence there are investigations and there's laboratory experiments. 
So, sorry. <laughs> Mr. Skeptics, <laughs> do your homework before you engage, study. Yes. And you have a book with all that information and your website. So there, there's a shortcut for those actually, people that want it. Actually, there's, there's, there's a, that, that's an article. That's a free article. But I mean, other books that are available there go in, in, in more details. Yes. Beautiful. And okay, so you mentioned there's like 12 other pieces of evidence to support the afterlife. Yes. What are they? Uh, I wouldn't say pieces. I would call areas. Okay. Areas. Okay, right. So I consider, for instance, what I described before the subject of study for, for, for parapsychology. So the, uh, the and so, so far unexplained because we don't have a model to explain that either. Huh? We don't we don't know how telepathy works. Why and how and we only have evidence that it works. So that in itself. Telepathy, precognition, psychokinesis, all that, you know, um, is not in itself evidence for life after life. But I consider it one of the area of areas of evidence because it opens you to the possibility. The fact that humans have psychic powers disproves the fact that mind equals brain. The fact that we have psychic powers tells us that our mind is more than the physical brain. And if we understand and accept that, then we are more open to understand and accept that in a way we do not understand we survive physical death. So that would, I would call that one big area. Another big area, which is less known by the general public, but better known by the health profession, is called deathbed vision, deathbed visions. Uh, and I can summarize this by saying that uh, research, research tells us that about 10% of us are conscious at the moment of our passing. Okay? Of that 10%, two-thirds, I mean, two, what two people in three, report visions of what appears to be the afterlife. They engage in communication with two-way communication with people they can see, and they say, oh, this is my deceased mom, this is my deceased dad, or whoever, they came to bring me over, okay? Very interesting. In a number, again, of very well-documented cases, these deceased relatives people talked to, the people having the vision did not know they were dead at the moment the vision takes place. So again, how do you explain that in terms of fantasy projection? Impossible. Another hyper-interesting thing about deathbed visions is that it's well-documented how people who think they are going to die, but make a recovery, do not have their visions. Mm. People who think they're going to recover, but actually die, have their visions. So it seems to be really the proximity to the moment of passing that somehow opens the doors to perception, opens a filter, and allows us typically in the 24 to 36, maximum 48 hours before the actual passing, mm -hmm. a lot of people have these visions. And this is so well known that the subject is taught at university level and at nursing schools, because nurses have to be prepared because they will see this as an everyday experience. People have these visions. So that's another huge, huge area uh, of uh, Evidence, please. I see you. I just, yeah, I just want to make a, a quick side note uh, for people listening. If you're more interested, if you're interested in deathbed visions um, and want to learn more, a few episodes ago, I have a whole episode about that. So, okay, continue. Fantastic. Sorry. Marvelous, marvelous. And uh, another huge area, you mentioned that you, uh, you're more leaning towards uh, reincarnation as an alternative to what happens in the afterlife. I 
would uh, humbly say, and, and, and my latest book really speaks to that in particular, that reincarnation is one phase of a, a grand, is one piece of a very grand scheme that involves incarnations in the physical world, periods in spiritual worlds, in the different levels of the spiritual world, and then reincarnation is a cyclical thing. So there, there seems to be the afterlife and there seems to be reincarnation. It's the two things are not mutually exclusive. Okay, tell me more. Uh, can we wait for a moment? Absolutely, we, yes. We well, we're coming back to that for sure. <laughs> we will, I promise, I promise. Perfect, I promise. Yes. yes. And um, so... It, as as you as with an interesting thing we have we have the division of perceptual studies of the University of Virginia, which for fifty odd years has pioneered studies on, uh, for instance, children who have uh, memories of a previous life, and the evidence collected by the University of Virginia, the University of Iceland, and other researchers is incontrovertible. Okay. End of story. Again, it's so much in depth, it is so watertight that, as uh, Professor Ian Stevenson, very cautious, very guarded, and, and the pioneer, the founder of this area of research, at the end of his life, he was pushed and said, yes, a rational person can, if he wants believing reincarnation on the strength of the evidence. But that's really an understatement from a very, very guarded academic. So we have evidence for the reincarnation. Then we have the huge area of after-death communication. And I do not, I, I speak of about 12, because it depends how you cut, how, how you slice the cake. Because if you look, after death communication in itself is such an ocean of evidence that that in itself contains various major areas, like, for instance, medium communication and mediums, as you know, that we have gazillions of anecdotal evidence. Anecdotes are the stories people tell, okay? And I'm looking at the time here because I'm, I'm very fond of this argument because skeptics say, oh, the plural of anecdotes is not data. Stupid, ignorant, it really intellectually feeble, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> imagine, imagine that, you know, I'm a medical doctor, okay, originally. Then, and then I went into public health, but originally I was seeing patients. Imagine that I do not believe the stories people tell me when they come to consult me. The entire edifice of medicine would crumble. Imagine we would not believe the testimony people give in court. The entire judicial system would crumble. So anecdotes in a scientific environment are not proof of anything, but they are evidence. They are a big finger that points us in a certain direction. Anecdotes tells us that, ooh, something's happened. So we have gazillions of anecdotal evidence that certain individuals, very rare, gifted individuals, in a word, speak to the dead. Okay. So then the second level is investigation. When anecdotes point in a certain direction, then people of science, people of reason, want to see, oh, let me see what's happening here. So they go out in what we call a naturalistic environment. They go out where and when these things happen. They apply a maximum of controls to make sure that what they are observing is the real thing. For instance, that uh, the medium did not know the sitter, and the medium could not have acquired any prior knowledge and, and blah, blah. So that's a, a more sophisticated and therefore heavier level of evidence. So to start with anecdotes, these anecdotes are very well confirmed in the case of mediumship by investigation. And then you have the top of the pyramid, 
which is laboratory experiments. At that stage, you're not in a naturalistic environment anymore. You're in the lab. And the lab is so useful because you have control over all the parameters. You can exclude any possible thing. And now we have about a dozen independent replications of a multiple blind protocol in which in the more sophisticated cases, we have five levels of separation between the sitter and the medium, okay? Julie Beichel, one of the authors of the, of the methodology says, nobody knows anything about anything, about anybody. And yet, research mediums demonstrate the capacity of providing specific and accurate information about discarnate personalities they knew nothing about. When you have 12 independent university level reputations of a study using a very similar methodology, according to science, the effect is proven. End of story. You have all the anecdotes the hundreds of millions of people who have been to a medium and have been told incredible things. Then you have the investigations confirming that, and then you have independent replication of laboratory experiments. There's no escape. You see why? I mean, you know. <laughs> now, then quickly within again the, the after death communication. Look, look at look, look at uh, instrumental transcommunication and all these electronic voice phenomena and everything. And here too, you have to sit through, you have to wait off a lot of the noise, a lot of the deluded people, like there are a lot of deluded so-called mediums. There are thousands of deluded people who go out in cemeteries with their tape recorder and they think they hear voices. This is very, very, very different from the real evidence done in, in a scientific and controlled and in an investigation environment. And there again, there's no escape. Another area, and then I stop within, <laughs> within after death communication is um, assisted after death communication. There's a number of techniques developed by clinical psychologists in the last 15 years which promote an experience of reunion with deceased loved ones and literally transform lives. Dr. Alan Botkin, for instance, and the very, the very, um, oh God, um, you see, when you speak to Take your time, home, take your time. Everyone, everyone. <laughs> The person I trained with, I stay, I, when I have these blanks, I Raymond I really, Moody. Uh, Raymond Moody, thank you very Are much. Are you talking about Raymond Moody? Raymond Moody, indeed, the person I, I trained with, and I went to train with him on his psychomantium technique, which is exactly a method to promote and facilitate experiences of being. So, gosh, we were, we were looking at all these different areas. And let me tell you, just to conclude, there's no point in, in, in getting details about other areas. What I'm saying is that we have very diverse areas of evidence, all pointing to the same idea, coherently and consistently supporting the idea that we survive death. And to conclude my, my preaching, let me say that if you have to cross a deep and, and large and wide uh, ditch, and you can try to do that with one bamboo stick, but it's difficult. Maybe the bamboo looks very strong, and that maybe we call it MDE, but you're not sure that you want to cross the ditch on that single bamboo. Then you take another bamboo stick and you call it the incarnation studies and you put it to the side. And ah, that looks a little better than I can probably go over. When you have assembled a hundred bamboo sticks, you can go across with a tank. <laughs> Nothing will not, you see, there's no, I, although, although privately, I think that even taken individually, some of these areas of evidence, for instance, in these, every with no exception, Marina, 
every single scientist who's dedicated their life to the study of NDEs is convinced that they are strongly supportive of life after life. Mm -hmm. They are convinced. Mm -hmm. Those who look on and don't know the research right. think that of explanations. Okay, so I privately think that there are a couple, for instance, mediumship, for instance, NDEs, that, that, that alone that would be enough. Mm -hmm. But it is the collective weight of the evidence is the main bamboo sticks that you use to cross this very difficult ditch. And for me, it's not, it's not been easy because I'm a Western educated medical doctor and, you know, old, old habits die hard. Yeah. Now I'm ready for your reincarnation thing. <laughs> okay. So, yes, I want to know more about that. And I've heard you say somewhere else that there are different uh, levels to uh -huh. the spirit world. I, uh -huh. I want you to talk about that a bit very and then we'll start happy. wrapping up since we're a little very short. happy very but happy. take your time so, thank you so uh, i was born in no <laughs> i was <laughs> starting that long ago however we're starting about uh, a year and a half ago and in this this pandemic i am i'm i'm sorry to say and but i make no mystery because i think that we should speak about these things and not and not be shy Took, uh, took it, uh, I took it really hard. I went through a fully blown depression with anxiety. It was a bit of a perfect storm between the limitations and other things and a certain lifestyle that came to, to an end and many things. Maybe an age issue as well, I don't know. The bottom line is that I really had a, a difficult year. Now, I'm, as you see, I'm a lot cheerier and things uh, go much better. Despite, thank you, despite all that, in the last year and a half, I managed to research and write an entirely new book, and which I consider a little personal success. I like that. And the book was is essentially everything that I had written uh, before and the video course I developed before, they, they were all directed to the bereaved. This particular book is called Step Into the Light, Transform Your Fear of Death by Learning About Life After Life. And it is specifically devoted to those who are in fear of death. Maybe it's just a curiosity, maybe a questions, maybe it's an, a being unsettled about the idea of death, maybe, God forbid, there's been a diagnosis of a terminal disease for the person or for a loved one, so there's an issue with that. And so I've been writing for the, I, I'm sorry for this uh, Skype printing uh, notifications, I don't know. Ah, turn off, turn off, uh, end of story. I've been, I've been writing for this puzzle, okay? And I wanted to try to, are you familiar with Lonely Planet guides? The Lonely Planet, the travel guides, oh, these are mm -hmm. beautiful, the travel guides, written essentially by people who have been there okay people who have been to thailand send their reports to lonely planet and the editors in lonely planet put them together and publish edit them and you know polish them and, and, and put out again so what i wanted to do is to the, the lonely planet guides to the afterlife essentially and instead of looking you know at, at abstract things like, you know, comparing what religions say or what different beliefs say. I looked at, at what I have learned and I realized that we have three categories of sources who have been there, who have a direct knowledge of what happens before, at the moment of death, and afterwards. Well, let's see what they have to say. So the first half of the book, since I'm a rationalist and I want my readers not to be convinced by nice stories, I want my readers to be convinced by the reason. They need to know that these three categories of sources are credible. So the first half of the book is devoted, is a bit of a CSI as a scientific investigation process, aiming at establishing the credibility of deathbed visions, near-death experiences, 
and after the communication. Once we have established, and I hope I've, I've done a, a, a decent job at, at establishing that these sources are indeed who or what they claim to be, then let's look at what they have been saying. And, and the big research work has been to dig up quotes, first-hand quotes from deathbed visioners, near-death experiencers, and spirit communicators. And as a Lonely Planet editor would do, arrange them and edit them. So it's not just one quote after the other. There's, there's, there's all the editorial content and the, and the organized. What, before we get into the generalities of the specifics, what is very interesting, and for me in itself and other elements of evidence, is that these three very different sources essentially say the same things. And that's very interesting because again, it's the coherence and consistency of the information we get. So if we just, we can barely scratch the surface. What seems to be happening is that Number one, contrary to uh, everybody's fear or most people's fears, we do not die alone. Before, in the hours, possibly day or two days before death, many, many of us, why not everybody? I don't know. I don't have an explanation. Remember, many of us are not, the vast majority of us are not conscious at the moment of our passing. And maybe, the one-third who do not report their, their visions, maybe they still have them, and we simply don't know, okay? But I, these are just tentative experiments. I do not claim to have an explanation. But the millions of cases in which deathbed visions occur tell us that the last moments in our, in our earthly life are spent in the company either of deceased relatives or deceased loved ones, or in the absence of them, spiritual guides or spiritual beings were not alone. And that in itself is a very comforting message, I think. Secondly, the moment of passing itself is a non-event. This is most extraordinary and anybody bothered reading my books, they find quotes after quotes after quotes saying there is no interaction in the flow of consciousness. The between and the after, it's exactly the same. And if you look literally at the five minutes before and the five minutes after, there is absolutely nothing that changes in one's own experience of being alive, okay? There is one significant exception, and that is when people are in pain or are suffering or are in distress just before dying, the disappearing of the pain and the distress is the signal. People say, what happened? All that pain, all that suffering, oh, I was short of breath, that's gone away. And now I feel perfectly well. That is the only case in which the moment of passing is connected to a physical sensation or, or a change in consciousness. Otherwise, nothing changes. Number three, what we call the afterlife, or if you want the spirit world, is not one is actually many, according to these sources, right? I mean, if not, I mean this is not, I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm just reporting what I've dug up and systematized. And, 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 and these levels, you can, you can arrange them in, in a time sequence, according to our own you know, human concept of time, because they occur one after the other. But you can also see them as concentric spheres or levels of, of, of floors, stories of a, of a building, if you want. The immediate afterlife corresponds to what I would call the lower 
afterlife. It's closest to the earthly plane, to the point that that's the point in which people see their own body and are surprised and disgusted and scared by seeing themselves dead. But I feel alive. How is that possible? And, and some of the people go to their own funeral and, and spirit, obviously, with, with the point of consciousness and are highly distressed by, by the pain of their relatives and, and blah, blah. So that's that's the immediate afterlife, which is followed often, but not necessarily by a period of rest and recuperation, which is essentially described as sleep. Okay. Then there is a, a consistently described almost with the same words by NDEers, near-death experiences, and spirit communicators, there is the life review, which is a very important part of the process and a very misunderstood teaching of many of the, of the established religions, because I call it life review and not judgment, because that's what it is. Souls Let's call them souls. This is no religious community, it's just shorthand, okay? Soul is whatever survives. Souls, souls at that stage are, they are essentially relive every single instance of their recent earthly incarnation. They refill every feeling, every sensation, every perception, and they have an appreciation of the effect of each and every of their actions on others. That is for the purpose of reflection and learning, is not for the process of punishment. And the end of that process is not that you either go to hell or go to heaven. You go to heaven anyway, and you go to heaven after having lived some of the suffering you might have imposed on others. And that again, that suffering is not a part, you were bad and so you're made to punish. No, you were bad and you're made to learn, to understand, to put yourself in the shoes and live in the shoes of, of the other people and everything. So think of this in terms of organic growth, wisdom and work. And then without getting into details because they're really interesting details and let me say very attractive details because life yeah the life in heaven it really ain't bad i must say and and let me describe the process like there's like a bubble of air at the bottom of the ocean which inevitably by some 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 fundamental process has to soar and expand and soar and expand and soar and expand and be, become more ethereal more rarefied and and that's what's happened to quote-unquote souls the souls of the immediate afterlife they still think they have a physical body okay the the souls of the quote-unquote middle after life, what we call summerland, they know they don't have physical bodies, but they like to imagine they have one. And so they live in this beautiful environment, sunny meadows, and then they engage in the activities that they would like to do. Musicians keep playing, scientists keep studying, and it really is a bit of a heavenly, cheesy, but very pleasant heavenly environment. But even that does not last because the bubble has to soar. And, and at some stage, no matter how nice and beautiful Summerland and the first heaven, as I would call them for short, and they are beautiful, but still souls grow tired of them and they are attracted upwards towards more light, more refinement, higher vibrations, some say, but I don't really know what that means, but just I'm trying to convey, you see how words are, are really, you know, they, 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 they fault us. There's movement towards light, towards pure consciousness. But then at some stage, there is still is reincarnation. Because, and here 
I, I, I try to summarize what comes out at the end of the book. And it's not the book, it's, it's what comes out from the lessons from these sources. Is that life is this enormous, very grand scheme that includes many, many incarnations in material realms, followed by many, many sojourns at the various levels of what we call the spirit world. And all this psychical process is not just going around in circles, is ascending a spiral. I don't know if you see the point, because at every cycle, our knowledge, our wisdom are increased. All life in the, in the material and in the spiritual world has one and only one purpose, which is having experiences. Okay. Having experiences. Good experiences, bad experiences. Experiences that you can have only in the material world, and that's why we incarnate, and experiences which you can only have in the spiritual world. At the end, and the reason ends, according to what we are saying, and this is interestingly very much linked to the deep teachings of many established religions, there is an end to the process. Because when you've completed your, your, your maturing, your ripening, your experiencing, your learning, your wisdom is complete, then you soar definitely, definitively, and you merge back into that original cosmic consciousness, this overall consciousness that we all originate from. If you're a religious, you're a religious person, you call it God. I am not a religious person, so I like to call it original fundamental consciousness. So when this happens, uh, we are no longer ourselves. We just join. Uh, it's amazing how this point is very, very frequently passed. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, because it's very interesting because even, you see, even with such a marvelous perspective of light and warmth and <gasps> belonging to this, merging yeah. into God, we're still scared of losing yeah. our individuality. Well, we don't. The good news is that according to our sources, again, in, they themselves have big difficulties in explaining how this can happen. You go back, it is like a wave that has was born out of the ocean, has evolved, has many lives and incarnations, and then goes back into the ocean, but retains a part of the individuality of the wave. Don't ask me, please. Don't <laughs> I don't know. They don't know. Imagine if I could know what how how that may happen. But this is what we're told. And it's really beautiful. And this is a message of such hope in, in such warmth. And it's a message that you don't need to quote unquote believe. Because this is a message you can study, you can challenge the evidence. And if, and I say, if you're satisfied with the evidence, then you can take it on board with, with a lot less ease. Or sorry, a lot more ease, sorry. Wow. Wow. Thank <laughs> you for being so thorough. This was so interesting to listen uh, to. I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really wow. Glad. Thank you. And how can people find you? If they want okay, to get in touch the with best, you. The best thing, again, is my website, drparisetti.com. I repeat, dr like the prefix for doctor, and then Paris like the French capital, e-t-t-i at the end, dot com. There you will find three articles, an entire, a whole book for free on apparitions and ghosts and everything. There's a lot of research there. Ah, that's another area of evidence, by the way. And there's an entire <laughs> book dedicated to that. And then, and then it, they can find other books I've written, and particularly this last one, uh, Step Step Into the Light, Transform Your Fear of Death uh, by Learning About Life After Life. Beautiful. And, and yeah, that's so necessary because we all, in some way or another, have 
death anxiety and fear of death. Do we not? Hence why we don't like talking about death. So I know. I know. And, and it's, I really have to thank, thank you briefly, but I really I want to say this because people like you have the courage to, to, to bring this up and to talk about it and to bring that in the open. I am doing my bit, but you are doing an extraordinary bit as well. And without people like you, I would not, yes, I've got my books, but I mean, you're the channel for, 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 for the information I have to share to go out in the world. And that's very, very important. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, I really enjoy doing this and I hope people, I know people will find meaning and, and gain something from this. So before I go into that, let's, uh, I'm going to ask you the last two questions that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So number one is if you were to die tomorrow, how would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered like somebody who, tried to prevent avoidable suffering. Mm. I've done that as a doctor. I've done that as a humanitarian by managing, you know, this relief operations around the world. And I tried to do this with today with my books and my talks and my conferences and, and by sharing, uh, trying, you know, with, with not, with not omnipotence. So I try my best, but my, my, my aim really in life is to try to avoid, to, to, to prevent avoidable suffering. Mm -hmm. And I would like to hope that to a little extent I, I've managed and I would like to be remembered as such. Beautiful. Yeah. And hence your book, you're literally, that's what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. And the second question, if you were to compile all the knowledge and wisdom that you've gained throughout your life into a message to share, what would that message be? This super interesting. This is a moment of enlightenment that came to me, not on the peak of a mountain, not gazing into the distant sun on a tropical island, not after hours of meditation, but in a restaurant toilet. <laughs> yes. I promise you, I was. <laughs> very unceremoniously sitting on in, in a toilet, in a restaurant. <laughs> and I was struck by this thought that captures and encapsulates all that I've read, all that I've studied, all that I stand for intellectually. Mm -hmm. And the thought goes, we're not bodies with the consciousness we lose at death. With consciousness, with the body, with those up there. Wow. I really think that. You see the power of the toilet, but it's true. <laughs> the power it of came, the toilet. It came at that moment, but it, it came on the back of a lot of thinking and, and learning and reflecting. Yes. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Piero, thank you so much. It is my pleasure. My pleasure, really. Hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, please make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. It really helps spread the message. Also, if you'd like to connect with me, follow me on Instagram at conversations on death. And I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. <laughs>